Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. It is Tuesday, October 10th. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Clean up on Maui in the aftermath of the deadly wildfires. We hear about the lessons learned from other community disasters as the EPA gets the green light from the county about using the soil additive to control the toxic ash. We kick off Fire Prevention Week and Fire Safety Month. With the Maui wildfires still on our minds, we hear about how we can prevent brush fires and what to do to reduce the risk of cooking fires. And it broke ground for spotlighting the mental health needs of women of color. Why, decades later, a book is being republished for its lasting value. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Environmental Protection Agency says efforts to remove hazardous waste in Lahaina are about 70% complete. Many of the structures, the hundreds of structures that were destroyed, were residential and contained toxic materials like lead and asbestos. Across the country, communities are engaged in this kind of cleanup in the wake of hurricanes, fires, and floods. But a new investigation from the Center for Public Integrity shows that workers involved in disaster cleanup often lack protections to keep them safe. The series, titled Toxic Labor, surveyed 100 people who had worked in disaster recovery, mainly in Florida and Louisiana. Many of those workers reported being exposed to harmful substances like lead, mold, and asbestos. Several also reported health issues related to that exposure. HPR Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Maria Inez Zamudio, one of the reporters on the investigation. Here's Zamudio. More than two-thirds of the workers told us that they were exposed to, to these harmful toxins on the job. And of those, most of them said that they experienced health symptoms that are linked to these toxins, such as skin and eye irritation, respiration issues, headaches. Um, and some workers even told us that they developed chronic illnesses, including lung cancer, asthma, and vision loss. Your investigation, Toxic Labor, was the first time I had ever heard disaster restoration described as an industry. Can you talk about the factors that have led to the growth of this industry and where we're seeing this type of work take place? Yes. So this is playing into the supply and demand question. Um, So a warming planet is creating this booming and very loosely regulated industry. And for example, in the last three years, there have been 20 major hurricanes, floods and wildfires. That's only five fewer than the entire 90s. So we can see that the demand for reconstruction um, and cleanup Um, will continue to grow and is growing, right? And so what we see is that unlike the scrutiny that we're seeing um, related to labor practices in places like Amazon and or or Starbucks, uh, companies that are profiting off of this climate-driven devastation have gone largely unnoticed or, you know, under the public's radar. So we've um, interviewed one of the biggest um, trade companies, and they told us that this industry is about $150 billion. 
And what's really also interesting is that because there is no special certification that's needed, really any construction company can turn to this work. And, um, you know, now our reporting mostly focused in Florida and Louisiana, um, but we know that as we continue to experience uh, climate-driven um, catastrophes like flash floods, hurricanes, and wildfires, we expect that this industry will continue to grow across the country. What protections are in place for people who might be working in this industry? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I want to lay out the the dangers. Um, Harmful toxins like asbestos, lead, and mold are very common in work sites post-hurricanes and other disasters as well. So even small exposures to asbestos can can cause lung cancer. Exposures to lead can lead to kidney problems and other uh, problems in the body. Mold can, can be contributed to pulmonary disease and asthma. And we know from OSHA's own research um, under the E-Matrix guidance that American structures built before the 1980s likely contain asbestos. And the agency also flags other potential um, issues with lead, whether it's coming from pipes or paint or dust. And so um, OSHA does have regulations for construction companies Uh, to train employees on how to properly handle lead and asbestos-latent materials uh, before coming into contact with them. Um, And employers must also provide suitable protection for those workers to minimize their exposure. Uh, Now, mold is very common after disasters, but there's no legal standard for it. And our reporting shows that OSHA, um, the, the U.S. Occupation Safety and Health Administration, has enacted an, an emergency response policy that favors fast recovery over worker safety. And so what often happens is that OSHA will suspend enforcement of workplace standards following disasters. Instead, Inspectors offer guidance with very little accountability to companies. And the idea there is that um, by OSHA inspectors providing guidance rather than citations, that they are going to have more access to these work sites and might offer instant feedback to the employers so that they can protect workers. But our analysis and our we took a closer look at the implementation of that policy after Hurricane Ian and we found that there was very little um, that inspectors were doing. Uh, for example, on average they were spending about 15 minutes um, in the work sites and in one instance that we included in the investigation, the uh, OSHA inspectors offered some very useful information to both an employee and its supervisor, and the supervisor and employee declined to even use it, right? So we also documented that OSHA has ignored years of research on workplace safeguards that would protect against um, post-disaster toxins. And so we know that this is an area that um, still needs a lot of protection. And um, we're hoping that this investigation will at the very least showcase this industry that for the most part has been um, overlooked. Can you talk in a little bit more detail about the labor force involved in disaster restoration? Who's doing this work? Yeah, 
This um, was one of the areas that was really hard because we needed to get responses from workers to be able to understand exposure. Um, and in the reporting process, we realized that this industry is fueled by undocumented labor. Uh, immigrants from Latin America and the Caribbean um, who have fled poverty, violence, and even natural disasters in their own home country are doing a lot of this work. And many of these workers unwittingly are exposed to these toxins and often have no protection. So a lot of the workers we spoke with, a lot of them didn't understand what they were being exposed to. Was there an experience that stood out to you among the folks that you spoke with for this piece? <sighs> There were so many. I um, called um, over 100 workers trying to get to this number because we wanted to make sure that we were documenting this. Um, and so I think a lot about the workers who rebuilt New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. The conditions were so incredibly difficult uh, for these workers. And when I asked for them to expand on their experiences, it was very clear that this had affected them not only physically, but also emotionally. Um, I quoted um, um, an, a worker uh, named Santos in my story um, who arrived to, uh, to work in New Orleans after Katrina, and he was assigned to clean um, this elementary school in the lower ninth ward. And he very vividly remembered this scene uh, because it was so difficult for him. And he talks about having to cut open this industrial-sized refrigerator to dispose of the decaying food. And he just talks about the stench of, of dead bodies, of um, destruction, of, of all of these uh, recent expensive things. And um, he talks about how workers would have to work in these 30-minute increments because the putrid smell was so difficult to handle that uh, workers would vomit and sometimes faint. And, you know, two years after he started doing this work, he was uh, forced to use an inhaler for the first time in his life. Now, Santos had been displaced by a natural disaster himself. Um, he survived um, Hurricane Mitch in his native country of Honduras, but he could not continue working because as a fisherman, uh, the river was contaminated after the uh, hurricane. So he ended up fleeing. Yeah, that really stuck with me. That was Maria Inez Amudio and HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. They were talking about a new investigation into the lack of worker protections in the disaster restoration industry across the country. We'll have a link to that story on the conversation page of our website later today. Civil Beat has more on the decision by Mayor uh, Richard Bisson to allow the EPA to use soil tack, uh, which is going to be used in this cleanup of ash in Lahaina Town. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us for today's reality check. Hi, Paula. Hi, Catherine. Hey, so you're there, boots on the ground in Maui. Yes, I am. And so this decision that came down um, from the mayor, uh, we understand that there was some concern about this additive. 
Uh, yeah, it's a soil tactifier. It's a substance that's sprayed often on construction sites or um, road projects to keep dust down. Um, uh, my understanding is it hasn't been used in a fire context yet, but it will be now that the mayor has approved its use in Lahaina. And so I know that uh, p- people, you know, have been concerned about this toxic ash, and, and there's the fear that, you know, if we get a heavy rain that it's going to go into the water. Not just in the water, but um, when it becomes airborne, um, the little particulates can enter people's lungs and uh, create havoc, um, health concerns. So it was pretty imperative. There was widespread agreement that they needed to put something down on the ash to um, to keep it in place. And so um, the question was, well, what kind of product are we going to use? And the EPA identified soil tack as the recommended um, substance. And um, some people were concerned because it is a plastic. It's, it's a polymer-based um you know, product that's sprayed down and it um, basically binds to the ash and keeps it in place um, until, you know, in this case, the Army Corps of Engineers comes in in phase two of the cleanup and starts, you know, removing the debris. But the the goal is to keep the ash in place um, so that it doesn't become airborne or it doesn't get washed into the aquifer or to the ocean. Um, but some of the concerns were that, well, it's, it's a plastic. Do we really want to be spraying plastic down on, you know, all these acres of land in Lahaina? Um, you know, plastic breaks down, and there was some concern that, you know, microplastics could end up in the food chain. Um, the EPA is saying that, um, you know, that that's not going to happen, that it's just going to be on the ground for a short period of time until the Army Corps of Engineers comes in and, and scoops it up and, um, you know, hauls it away along with the, uh, the debris. So, um, you know, there, there's been back and forth about whether this was the best product to use, but ultimately it was the mayor's call. And last night he decided to, um, to give the thumbs up. Uh, it should be mentioned it was already used in Kula, um, you know, a much smaller burn zone than in Lahaina, but, um, you know, he had already given his approval to have it used in Kula and, um, you know, some people say that as soon as it, it gets applied to the the ash, you don't smell the uh, the acrid smell of the fire anymore. So that, that's one upside, I suppose. And this has been used in other uh, cleanup sites on the mainland? Um, yeah, it has. It's been used um, in um, Alameda at a Superfund site um, on the shores of San Francisco Bay. It's apparently currently being used in um, San Mateo county on a bike park project um you know it's been used on construction sites and things like that um so it's not an unknown uh, product but you know it hasn't it hasn't been tested for example on on coral reefs like if, if it were to degrade and and end up in the ocean like how would it um interact with the coral reefs and there there has been no testing that i'm aware of done on that but but again, you know, the EPA is saying that it will be um, scooped up, you know, by the Army Corps of Engineers and the likelihood of it, you know, being leached out into the environment is very small. And they said, you know, given given the huge toxicity that's uh, involved with the ash, you know, something had to be done sooner rather than later because, as you know, next week, you know, school children in Lahaina are going to be returning to classrooms that are just about a quarter of a mile from the burn zone. So it was pretty imperative to get that ash sealed down before 
the kids return to school. Yeah, and then a lot of the families have been returning to go through those uh, burned-out sites, and they've been wearing all the protective gear. But, yeah, uh, you, you, we are concerned about what is airborne and what will get into the environment. Uh, and and so, yeah, I guess uh, that that's something you'll be tracking, you know, as, as we start school next week. Um, you folks have a, a pop-up in, in the neighborhood. Yeah, we'll be, we have these series of pop-up newsrooms where we generally we work out of public libraries, but um, in this case, uh, we'll be in Ka'anapali at uh, Duke's Beach House Restaurant on Thursday from 10 until 5. It'll be me and, and um, editor uh, Patty Epler and Deputy Editor Nathan Eagle and a few other folks from our newsroom flying over from Honolulu, and, and we'll be just there for you know most of the day, just You're interacting with readers. If, if people have story ideas and they want to bring them to us, um, that's what we're there for. All righty. Well, thanks so much, Paula. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. That was Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Let's go back to post-statehood Hawaii circa 1961 when Henry Kaiser and Bishop Estate uh, signed a development agreement for Hawaii Kai and Coco Marina. The $350 million planned community on 6,000 acres of Bishop Estate land was slated to be Hawaii's second largest city. Developers had hoped to build 14,000 homes that would support a population of 50 to 70,000 people. The plan was an homage to a national ideal appropriate for early statehood, the American suburb. But in the beginning years, sales were slow. To supplement those slow sales, Kaiser planned a resort at Queens Beach and a minor league baseball team to play at a 50,000-seat stadium in the area. It was a long while before Hawaii Kai became what it is today, and before it could build the suburbs, Bishop Estate had to create the land. So the question for today is, what was Hawaii Kai back then, before it became the suburb that we know today? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. happens to be Fire Safety Month. The theme for this Fire Prevention Week focuses on preventing cooking fires. 
but it's hard to escape the memory of what happened in Lahaina and upcountry Maui. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with Honolulu Fire Captain Chris Bartolome. What is our risk here of having a fast-spreading destructive fire like we saw in Maui? Well, what we saw in Maui was a combination, right, of the fuels, the way the weather was, the topography. The wind plays a, a, a very huge part in it. So here on Oahu, we have dry conditions on the west side. You know, I, I was in the 4th Battalion most of my career. I've climbed mountains how many times, and it's pretty dry. You, I mean, I'm sure you can attest to that, seeing how dry it is on the west side. Topography, put the canyons in the mountains, wind gets forced through there pretty quickly, pushing the fire. So, of course, what you saw there can happen here because we have the same thing, drought conditions sometimes. We have dry conditions. We have winds, the mountains. So, of course, it can happen here. So, when we think about brush fire prevention, what more can the public do to be aware of the risk and the potential danger around them? Okay, that's a good question because I think that's where it starts, right? The individual homeowner or the person that owns the property. What can you do for yourself and for your family? That's where it starts. There's a lot of different things you can do to make your home less susceptible to the embers. That's what causes a lot of the uh, building fires, right? The embers come up and they start getting pushed because there's wind. And then if your home is susceptible to these embers, the embers get seeded in different areas around your home where it's very easy to ignite, then you have your house fires. So the first thing the homeowner can do is to make your home less susceptible or hardening your home to make sure that you don't have those ignition points. Make sure that your vegetation around your home, I would say five feet, shouldn't have anything that can burn close to your home. You can go further out, 30 feet, make sure that the landscaping is well taken care of and manicured and vegetation is well cared for, watered. If it's dry, you know, you're going to have to start taking care of that to make it less easy to ignite. You can also trim your trees, take away the, the dead branches at the lower levels. Those are like what they call ladder fuel. So if you had fire burning on the ground and you have these dry branches they can catch on fire, and then pretty soon that sets the next level on fire. So it just keeps going higher and higher, and it pretty soon starts spreading around the top. So a lot of it is maintaining the vegetation and landscaping around your home to make sure those are kept down. And then as well as taking dry leaves and needles out of your rain gutters, that's another source or an area that embers can go to and ignite and start a fire. Also, people's houses, sometimes they're like lifted up on tofu blocks and there's like a space underneath. You might want to block that area off so embers can fly underneath into that space. That's another area that embers could fly under and you wouldn't even know because it's under your house. So you might want to start blocking it off with fire retardant material, that space, as well as eaves. You have maybe those vents in the eaves. You got to make sure that those are properly screened off and not just open where embers can fly into those open spaces. So there's a lot of things that the homeowner, they can do to prevent those flying embers from igniting their home. As well as, of course, down the road, if you have 
wooden roofs down the road if you're going to re-roof look into getting flame retardant roofing material control the things that you can do take care of the things that you can do for your own home let's Mm -hmm. turn our attention to this year's campaign the campaign is cooking safety starts with you pay attention to fire prevention the focus is educating everyone about simple but important actions that they can take to keep themselves and those around them safe when cooking can you talk about the risks we encounter when we are cooking? In Hawaii, everybody, they're all good cooks. Everybody can cook. From little kids, I've seen it. I grew up. We were cooking early because my, the parents had to go to work early, so we were left to fend for ourselves. Okay, go make breakfast in the morning or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. The biggest cause, right, of these home fires and these, these residential fires is cooking-related. And, and the number one cooking-related one is unattended. There's so many distractions nowadays from your phone to the television to your computer that easily distracted. So if you're cooking and you get a text and you walk off to address a text or you're watching TV and you hear something going on on the TV and then you go watch TV, then pretty soon you forget about what they were doing in the kitchen. So a lot of the time it's just that unattended cooking that starts it. We've been to a lot of fires where they truly forgot that they were cooking something. So we tell people you need to remain in the kitchen when you're cooking, stay there. If you have to leave, you have to turn off the stove. In the firehouse when we're cooking, and if we get an alarm, we're not gonna leave it on, we're not gonna put it on simmer, we're gonna turn it off. So same in your home. If you gotta do something, turn it off. If it's like real quick, you gotta do something, set a timer on your phone that you're always carrying around with you. Or carry around the pot holder that you're using to hold the pot. That might help you remember, oh, wait a minute, I'm cooking something. I better get back to the kitchen. Like I said, we've been to a lot of fires like that, that they just forgot or just got preoccupied, ended up outside talking to their neighbor, or sometimes they watched TV and they fell asleep. That's the biggest one. Others, uh, other ones are like if you have children in your home, have them play outside when you're cooking, not in your kitchen. I, I understand that. Houses are getting smaller, units are getting smaller, there's no place for the kids to play outside. But we want to keep the children outside of the kitchen when you're cooking, because you don't know, you don't have eyes in the back of your head. What if you might be moving a pot somewhere and you didn't realize your pet or your child is behind you and you tripped on them moving backwards, right? We tell people, if you have to absolutely do that, explain to your child that you cannot come in this three-foot zone around the stove area. Maybe you might have to mark it off with your little kids or something. You cannot come in this three-foot area when you're cooking. Of course, there's other ones, like if you start cooking, always keep the lid that fits the pot you're using right on the side. If the substance you're cooking catches on fire, you can easily just reach over and grab the lid to cover the pot and turn off the heat, and you just leave it. Some people would freak out and they try to pick up the pot and run to the uh, kitchen sink. And in the excitement, they might trip or they might spill. Now you're going to have fire all over your kitchen. So always start with the lid that fits next to you at your stove. Easy. If there's a fire in your oven, just leave the door closed and turn it off and leave it till it's completely cool. Anytime you feel you're not sure, you can call the fire department better to be safe than sorry, right? There's other ones like um, if you're cooking, don't wear loose clothing because, of course, the loose clothing might catch on fire or you might hook the pot handle and you might move your hand quickly and 
now the pot goes flying with whatever contents is inside it might be burned. Yeah, that's a lot of information for cooking safety, yeah. <laughs> but it's only because I've seen it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've, I've gone to emergencies so I can speak on it because I've seen it. When you talk about calling the fire department, at what point should people call the fire department to help with a cooking fire? Personally, being in the fire department, I would just call right away, right? You want to call before it gets raging, rolling out of control, right? As soon as you see it, you'll know if you can handle it or not. As soon as you see it, I would start calling, getting my family out, calling 911, because you want to get there as early as possible before it starts growing and growing, right? And then the fire department, it's not instantaneous, right? As soon as you pick up the phone, they're not going to be there in a minute. It takes time for the dispatch to relay the call, and then it takes time for the crew to suit up and get on the truck, and then it takes time for the truck to drive on down to where the the uh, incident is happening. So early notification is always key. Yeah, that's good advice because there are some people out there who may not be sure or, you know, mm-hmm. they don't want to create humbug for firefighters, no. but... Yeah, I, I get it. That, yeah. That's the in Hawaii, we're really nice about it. But we have to relate to the listeners. You just call right away. The earlier detection is key. Um, you might have to just call three companies or three trucks. But if it's huge, you know, you got to call like ten trucks. So now they're pulling resources from other parts of the island. So you see how that kind of like, oh, okay, it's not such a good idea to wait. Yeah, very important call the fire department better to be safe than sorry yeah yeah captain chris bartolome thanks so much for your time hey appreciate you have a great day and that was hfd captain chris bartolome talking with hbr's russell subiano about fire prevention week we'll have a link to fire prevention resources on the conversation page of our website later today Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. I'm Marco Werman. The fallout and retaliation after an unprecedented coordinated attack on Israel by Hamas militants. Israel has launched massive airstrikes on Gaza. Hundreds are dead on both sides. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is at war. We'll have the latest on the ground from the Middle East next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Willow, we for me. Willow, we for me. Bend your branches down. 
The United Nations has declared this Mental Health Awareness Day, so we're giving a nod to Nanama Donkwa. She's the author of Willow Weep for Me, A Black Woman's Journey Through Depression. The book was first published in 1998 and hailed as groundbreaking work. It began discussions about mental health for women of color at a time when that was far from the case. Penguin Random House re-released the book on its 25th anniversary. Donkwa is a native of Ghana. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with her about the book's relevance today. As an author who wrote a book, what we might now call a classic, it paved the way for writing and consciousness about mental health. What do you think has shifted since the book was first published 25 years ago? I think that a lot has shifted in terms of people's ability to even say it, to say depression, to say therapy, to say bipolar, but I also think that not enough has shifted because beyond just saying it, we also have to understand it. We have to understand how to exist with it for those of us who experience it. And we have to understand how to be empathetic to it for those of us who know and love people who experience it. So what do you think the barriers are to understanding depression? Why aren't we understanding it if we're talking about therapy now? I think it's a sort of a cognitive dissonance. We have this medical system or this view of medicine in our country that basically separates body from mind and people somehow feel as though you should be in control of your mind that you should be in control of what happens in your mind and mind over matter and things like that, that that fool us into thinking that the mind is somehow divorced from the body. We just have this way of compartmentalizing the body. And so I think that it's difficult for people to understand depression as something different than just how we use it casually when people say, oh, I'm depressed, meaning I'm in a bad mood. And I think people don't understand depression as an illness that actually is not just of the mind, but also of the body. I believe that this book is highly relevant to us in Hawaii, which is a majority-minority state. We have many women of color, not very many black women, but indigenous women, um, women of Asian descent, women of mixed ethnicities. And I think that your approach to discussing depression in this way can be a way in for many people because I noticed that your book delves into the impact of immigration difference, and response to white power structures. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts about this. Your book, you know, was about depression, but there are specific things that you're addressing. When you're dealing with any illness, and certainly with depression, you deal with medical, medical bias, 
And I, I think mm. people, again, have not caught up with mental health because it's so divorced from physical health. Trying to find, for instance, a therapist who looks like you, who understands what it is you're talking about. I, I was having therapy with a psychiatrist who had no idea anything about race or racism and oh, was like, oh my God. I mean, like, you know, and I don't need that. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling terrible, I don't need for you to look astonished or even some of the microaggressions. I don't need for a therapist to ask me whether it's perceived, whether it's something that is my perception or whether it's really happening. If I say somebody followed me around the store right. as I was moving from one aisle of clothing to another aisle of clothing, I want you to believe me. If I say that to somebody black, they're going to go, uh-huh, because they know. They right. understand that it happens. When we turn our conversations to ourselves, we have to be speaking to somebody who understands our condition in a very decolonized way. Let's step outside of mental health for a second. Let's step into diet and exercise. When you speak with a nutritionist who says, oh, you know, just eat salmon and Brussels sprouts. Well, what if that's <laughs> not part of your cultural food? Right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, so we have to start looking at ways of healing that don't divorce us from our culture, mm. you know, and that don't center us in the colonial mentality or in white supremacy. I think that that's part of the issue is and why so many of us just don't want to go and talk to therapists, so many people of color, because there's just a sense that they're not, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. You're not going to understand where I come from. And socioeconomically, many people of color are going to be going through programs. And a lot of these programs do not have any sort of cultural sensitivity built in. And those things are really important, especially with mental health, because your story has everything to do with who you are and how you walk through this world. And your story involves your gender, your race, your sexuality, your family history, your medical history, generational trauma. All of that is your story. People have to understand. What are the stories that you think that we need to hear now to address mental health? I think we need to hear the truth. I think we need to start really talking about why somebody committed suicide. You know, what were they going through? I think people who have been through depression need to speak up, just in the same way that people say, I'm a cancer survivor, or I've, I'm going through menopause, or I've had a hysterectomy. You know, I think that we need to start speaking honestly 
about what we're going through so people understand. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I was in an MFA program at Bennington, and one of the guest instructors was Robert Bly. And we were speaking, and he said, I said, I was writing a book about depression and and black women. And he said, that's going to be one really long book. (laughs) 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 You know, (laughs) so there's that. And then also, I happened to be at a dinner party, and there was an older, one of those blue-haired, sort of, you know, wealthy women at, at these art functions that we're all familiar with, very stereotypical. So she wants to know, like, oh, what are you writing about? And I said, you know, black women in depression. And she says, black women in depression? Huh. When black women start going on Prozac, you know the whole world is falling apart. And so these are things that make you kind of go, what? Mm-hmm. You know, are we supposed to be holding up the world? Right. You know, I mean, like, even 25, 30 years later, I'm still trying to turn over that statement. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that somebody could have so much of a sense of entitlement to their sense of luxury and their sense of being able to rely on somebody else to be a pillar. Well, it's also not viewing your full humanity at all, right? No, not viewing, you know, the full humanity of black people at all. You were a leader in how you were speaking and writing at the time. So tell me, what are you thinking about when you look back at that young woman who was writing? How do you feel looking at that work that you wrote so many years ago now as a different kind of writer in person? You know, I learned long ago as a writer that it's you have to come to a point where you say the end or else you'll have a pencil and you'll be like, you know, <laughs> wanting to edit everything that you write. I really try not to look at the book and think, oh, I should have written it this way. In terms of the writing, I think I did the best job I could then with everything that I was aware of and everything that I know, and I still stand by that. In terms of the book beyond the literature, beyond the writing, in terms of the content, I I paved the road by walking. I was so scared every step that I took. I was so scared because truth-telling is a frightening thing. You don't know who is going to be on the other side of that. You don't know how you're going to be lambasted. You don't know who's going to say you're a liar, particularly those of us who have suffered abuse, because that is the ultimate abuse on top of all the abuse that we've already suffered is to then be gaslit and told you're a liar, you're making it up. And that's often what happens. And indeed, that did happen to me. But one of the things that really surprised me, pleasantly so, were all the people who cheered me on and said, yes, we need this. I need this. And toward the end of the process, what I realized is that I had freed myself not necessarily from depression, but I had freed myself from silence. And that 
is what makes depression deadly. If anybody reads my memoir and they see themselves in the pages in terms of what I describe about depression, please, please get help. That was Nanama Donkwa talking to HPR's Stephanie Hahn about her book, Willow Wait For Me. It shifted the conversation about how women of color experience depression and mental health in this country. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Today on The Daily, the Supreme Court began its new term last week. Previous terms produced major victories for the conservative legal movement. Today's episode is on how this term may be different. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana. Since 1929, providing fresh water to Oahu with ideas to help reduce water waste. Information booklet at protectoahuwater.org. Story Corps recently um, started into, uh, launched an initiative called Military Voices. It provides a platform for veterans, service members, and military families to share their stories. Story Corps was in Hawaii last year collecting stories from local voices. HBR host John Zach will share some of these stories with you over the next few weeks as we approach Veterans Day. Take a listen. This is StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative. Alexei Kotko interviews Richard Ha about his experiences as a college dropout who discovers leadership skills in the jungles of Vietnam. We were all in this together, the company. I was um, a second lieutenant when I was there. Our job was to take care of the men. So we focused on that because our obligation was to each other. And the unwritten rule was this. We all come back or nobody comes back. And I got to emphasize that because that's a lesson I learned all my life. I really like that idea of taking care of each other that way. Help us understand, where did that come from, that kind of way of thinking about each other? Uh, You know, it's survival. So so you're in a group, are you going to fight with each other when you've got the enemy out there hiding in the bushes? You can argue all you want all day, but when it gets down to cases, oh man, our life, we're we're one one group Mm -hmm. helping each other out, yeah. I can imagine that definitely creates uh, a unique bond between human beings. Absolutely. So my job is a artillery officer whose responsibility is to take care of this company. So you're walking on a ridge line, aware of where the, the guns are that, that's going to be shooting artillery. So I know where they're coming from. Now, 
imagine this. Your responsibility is to take care of your men. We're walking down a ridge line, and there could very well be ambush along the way. So what do we do? And here's the artillery coming across. What I did was I shoot and walk it up the ridge line and walk it down the ridge line, and uh, I would make it look like there was uh, enemy packs and weapons, and then they shoot like hell. I doing my job. What were some of the more memorable experiences that you had out in the field? And one thing I, I did notice about that time is that if you're from Hawaii, it didn't matter what race you were. If if you were from Hawaii, it, it was just a common you know common thing to to bond and get together, and mm-hmm. it was just that way. Any other stories or experiences that stand out to you while in service out in Vietnam? So here, here we were receiving sniper fire. So we all ran and jumped into this depression right in by where our hooch was. And as soon as we landed there, the things I, my pop taught me from small kid told me, hey, we got to get out of here. One grenade will get us all. You know, it was like that. So I grabbed my a radio operator and we took off and bullets are flying all over. We jumped and uh, got away from there. And no sooner we did that, a grenade landed exactly where we were. Yeah, bang. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the idea about we all come back and nobody comes back, that lesson lasted my whole life. Are heroes born or are they made? In the case of Richard Ha, perhaps it was a bit of both. StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative is produced in collaboration with Hawaii Public Radio. I'm John Zack. Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University, with military campus programs for service members and their families on base, on campus, and online, hpu.edu military. And now it's time to unearth the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Back in 1961, Henry Kaiser and Bishop of State signed an agreement to develop uh, what we now know as Hawaii Kai. It was designed to be a $350 million planned community on on 6,000 acres of Bishop of State land. This development set out to copy the American suburb seen across the United States. The, The area was developed around the ancient Mauna Loa fish pond and the wetlands area that included the 523-acre Kuapa Pond, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Hawaii Kai and Coco Marina was dredged out of Kuapa Pond starting around 1959. Dredging not only transformed the shallow coastal inlet and wetlands into a marine embayment or a recess in the coastline that forms a bay, but it was accompanied by considerable filling and clearing of the many area fish ponds. In its original state, Kuapa Pond had a natural barrier beach separating it from Mauna Loa Bay and the Pacific Ocean. And that was today's quiz. We had no winners, which was surprising. But if you have an idea for a quiz to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. That does it for us for right now. Tomorrow, we plan to spotlight an opera about Japanese internment. There is an opera opening this week about that. 
Color Talkback line for feedback for us, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.